James Allen McPherson. James Allen McPherson was born in Savannah, Georgia in 1943 before integration. He remembers skipping school to go read books in the colored branch of the local library. In 1978, McPherson won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction for his collection of short stories, Elbow Room. He was the first African-American to win that prize. McPherson holds a law degree from Harvard and an MFA in writing from the University of Iowa, an MFA as Masters of Fine Arts, where he currently is a professor in English. He also taught in Japan, which as we turn the page to begin the story, you'll see that the title is in Japanese. McPherson has won a number of major writing awards, including a Guggenheim Fellowship, a MacArthur Fellowship, and several Pushcart Prizes. One of his mentors was Ralph Ellison, the author of Invisible Man. Wow. Luke, like Ellison, McPherson is considered to be a moral historian. He sees America as an ideal always pursued, always there, but never reached. He is often quoted for the following philosophy of life or idea about what it is to be an American. I believe that if one can experience diversity, touch a variety of people, laugh as its craziness, distill wisdom from its tragedies, and attempt to synthesize all this inside oneself without going crazy, one will have earned the right to call oneself citizen of the United States. Okay, I don't speak Japanese, but here's the title. Kani wa korani niset ana o uru. In other words, crabs dig holes according to the size of their shells. Which kind of makes sense. James Allen McPherson. All right, so as I skim over looking at this text, I see that it's not very long. And so let's dive in on page 39. There was a Christmas morning that first year when something of the outside world intruded into my fortress. I had put up a Christmas tree the evening before and had given it all the life lights, bulbs, a star, an angel, and gifts that were immediately available to me in this house. You know, Kiyo, from the early winter you spent here, just how essential this season is to me. So apparently he's living in Japan. When I send Christmas gifts now to my friends there, I like to imagine them floating all over Tokyo, Osaka, Nara, Sendai, Chiba, filtering gently into the homes of my friends like warm winter snow. Nefer called me here on Christmas Day about three years ago after she had received her gift. She laughed and said, Santa Claus must have gone crazy. This is when she began calling me Jim-chan. I will admit it. I am childish about the Christmas season. I was once invited to take an ink blot test and was asked to report to the tester the first familiar shapes that came into focus. So what I would encourage you to do now is look up ink blots because I think that you'll uh, have a good idea of what that is. It'll help you visualize what they're saying. Out of all the possible combination of dots that might have 
constituted buildings, airplanes, cars, the faces and bodies of women and men, I saw only a Christmas tree. Such, apparently, is the importance of this season for me. But on that morning, because I was alone as usual, my plan was to sleep right through Christmas Day. And I was sleeping when the telephone rang. When I answered it, someone said, My name is Howard Morton. I'm your neighbor across the street. My wife and I have been watching your house. We see you come and go once in a while. Now we're worried about you. Your Christmas tree lights have been on all night, and we thought something had happened to you because uh, to cause you not to turn them off. Are you all right? If you need anything, remember my name is Howard Morton, M-O-R-T-O-N. My wife's name is Laurel. Our telephone number is in the book. Merry Christmas. Beyond the simple expression of the Christmas spirit, Kiyo, there were several other values encased in this call. There was frugality, wariness, and also compassion. It's at this time I'd like to pause again and say that sometimes you come across words and you just kind of read over them to make sure that you're capturing, you know, the gist of the whole text. But sometimes there's a time whenever you see that these words are going to be very important to what was in this call. So I'd like to pause now for you to have some time to look up the word frugality wariness, and compassion. And so as you're looking, it's going to be really important to look at not only the dictionary definition of what it means to be frugal, but also the connotation or the feeling associated with being frugal. There's a difference between being frugal and being cheap. So Go look up the words and then think about how that connects with the phone call and how that phone call embodied those three characteristics. I had noticed this man and his wife across the street coming and going a number of times. They were, quote, white, unquote. They were, in terms of the long, hard path I had to walk to this house, no more to me than, quote, other. Unquote. That's a really interesting pairing of those two, white and other. It's a contrast that you probably should pay attention to. And remember you, the biography that we read about um, this author, Ms. McPherson. It adds to what his experience is. Besides my own world in those days, extended only as far as the mailbox beside my front door. Oh, I need to read that again. They were, in terms of the long, hard path I had to walk to this house, no more to me than other. Besides, my own world in those days extended only as far as the mailbox outside my, beside my front door. I went back to bed. But later, many months later, I placed this man's call in memory beside the rescue offered by the two, quote, brothers close quote, in the passing truck. The two beer-bloated white men on the lonely road the other side of Cedar Rapids back in the early fall. 
Now, one thing I want to point out here, too, is that a lot of times the author begins to talk about something that you don't know what they're talking about. And at this point, I don't know. I know that these two characters are in, entered there and there's another contrast. I also want you to notice that we have white, other, and brothers in quotation marks here. So that's important for us to note as we begin to deal with these difficult moments in the text to figure out how they impart meaning. Both couples, the two in the truck and the two across the street, had offered me a lifeline. After much more thought, many months late, more months later, I began to understand that both lifelines had been extended out of a value bank. An old, obscure value bank rooted in the practical necessities of frontier life. Something is owed to the stranger, any stranger who seems to be in trouble. This something owed is impersonable, impersonal, no more than a simple expression of good manners. It is an unconscious habit, not a passion. The Romans called it communitas. Here, the word for it is neighboring. In your language, kio, kio, the comparable word is jiri. So I might need to stop and look up the Japanese words for these. But as I'm thinking, you know, it, it almost is like he's getting help because somebody felt like they should, just because they were a neighbor and not because of who he was. But back then, during that first freezing winter in my soul, I just did not care to understand. Instead, I focused on patrolling my own habits inside the house. I remained loyal to the ritual base of my own mythology. I controlled, with even greater gloating, my watchful and strict remotion from the life, the animal life, outside my screened bedroom window. Nights in my bed, I still paid careful attention to owls hooting nonchalantly and then screeching, and the field mice and squirrels crying like babies before they died. I watched, in the mornings, the sun touched a clean white snow, and very often I could see paw prints of raccoons and the lighter imprints of squirrels etched into the otherwise pure, idealistically pure, disguise crafted by a benign nature to hide the terrible evidence of how the process of life, both animal and human, went their way. Now, you're going to notice, again, on this page, just like we had the quotes before, we've got some italicized phrases, animal life, ideally pure, and then both animal and human that are going to play probably into our interpretations of what he's trying to tell us here about life. It was always warm inside that bed, and most nights I would leave the window open, no matter how cold it was outside, and invite the frigid air to drift through my screen and touch my head and overcome the heat inside the room so that under my blanket I could generate some more, much more, of my own personal, private, unshared warmth. In this way, remotely self-sufficient and gloating, I passed my first winter in this haven of a house. But in the early spring, 
when the snow had gone away, and when the trees that were in the backyard I had never explored were once again in bloom, despite my elaborate patrolling and precautions and mysteriously in defiance of my screen, one morning something managed to invade my fortress. I wakened to find it crawling on my skin beneath the blanket, and then it hummed and fluttered and panicked, and then it gave me a vengeful sting in the ass. As always, all windows in the house and even my bedroom door were closed. My bedroom window was, as always, screened. It is still, these many years later, a profound mystery to me. A cone. I'm not familiar with that word. My bedroom window was, as always, screened. It still is, these many years later, a profound mystery to me. A cone. Just how a spring bumblebee had wormed its way into the very center of the sanctuary I had so carefully constructed around the very outsides of myself against the magnetic field of outside life. Something was denying me peace because I had denied it range and meaning. There's a lot of thinking to do about this one, huh?